Please be seated. Thank you, Caroline, for reminding us this is our Father's world. Off the wrong seems off so strong. God is the ruler yet. That's what we're studying in the book of Revelation. Jesus is king. Jesus wins. I want to turn you for our next passage of study to Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. It's an easy book in the Bible to find. Just go to the back. It's the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. We've been studying it now for a couple of weeks. I gave you an outline for it. I said there are four visions here, all visions of Jesus on His throne. And we're looking at and studying the first vision, which is roughly from chapters 1 to 3. We're in the second portion of that vision, verses 9 to 20, after having heard in verses 8 to 11, verses uh, uh, 1 to 8, I mean, we've heard that we are loved by God in Christ. Nothing can change that. If Christ is our Savior, nothing can change our loved status. And that's essential to living for Christ in this world, especially in persecution and suffering. It is to know that we are loved. But how do we remember that we are loved? How do we know that we are loved? You know, it used to say on railroad crossings, stop, look, and listen. You're supposed to stop at the railroad crossing. You're supposed to look both ways, and you're to listen for a train coming. And John says something similar here. He tells us, stop. He's, in, he's on the Lord's day. He tells us on this Lord's day, in this worship service, stop. And then he says, I want you to listen. I want you to listen to the Word. And through the Word, I want you to look, and you will see Jesus that will convince you that you're loved. You ready for that? We begin in verse 9, reading from Revelation chapter 1. <clears throat> I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus... I was on the island called Patmos on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. He was clothed with a long robe and with golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace." And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me and he said, fear not. 
I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades. Amen. One of my heroes was Jim Elliott. As we're approaching Missions Conference Week, we will probably have Jim Elliott's name mentioned, the famous missionary who, along with four others, was martyred by Alca Indians in Ecuador, trying to reach them with the gospel. His widow, Elizabeth Elliott, is also a hero. She and others, uh, other widows, went back to the Alca Indians and led them to Christ. It's a vibrant Christian community to this day. <clears throat> Elizabeth Elliot eventually married again. That husband died a prolonged and brutal battle with cancer. She married a third time. That husband, Lars Glenn, uh, they were married for some 37 years, and he took care of her to the end of her life when she died at 88 about six or seven years ago. He died of dementia. Four years after her second husband died, James Montgomery Boyce, a pastor pastor at 10th Presbyterian at the time, interviewed her and asked her, after a life of such severe suffering, how did the sovereignty of God give her perspective on that? And she said this, the experiences of my life are not such that I could infer from them that God is good or gracious and merciful necessarily. To have had one husband murdered and another one disintegrate body, soul, and spirit through cancer is not what one would call a proof of the love of God. In fact, there are many times when it looks like just the opposite. My belief in the love of God is not by inference or instinct. It is by faith. To apprehend God's sovereignty working in that love is, we must say it, the last and highest victory of the faith that overcomes the world. A few years ago when she died, I was interested to hear her husband, Lars Glenn, say, she handled her own dementia in the same way she responded to her first two husbands' death. She accepted those things knowing they were no surprise to God. It was something she would rather not have experienced, but she accepted it in keeping with the love of God. 
John says at the beginning of the book, as we learned last week, you are loved to him who loves us. And now he comes in verse 9 to admit that he is a partner with these churches in the tribulation that is coming to them. How can John say that? How can John say, I am convinced, you must be convinced too, that you are loved as much as you can possibly be loved and you can't be unloved by God the Father. And at the same time, this tribulation that you're experiencing is not only something that's coming on you, but we are in it together, and it is in Jesus. This tribulation, you notice, verse 9, is in Jesus. While you and I are also in the kingdom, and while you and I are also enduring this with the patient endurance that Jesus gives us. How do you gain that confidence that you are loved in Christ even while you're suffering? You gain it from God's Word. He says, I I, I was in the Lord's day. I was, literally, he says, I was in the Lord's day. I was in the Spirit I was listening to Jesus, and He enabled me to see Him. That's what it is. To be able to suffer with patient endurance, all the while never being convinced anything other than that God loves us. You may not be able to put that together. You may not be able to figure out why you're suffering as you're suffering, why you're sad as you are, why this thing had to happen in your life or this disappointment has occurred. But you may be sure of this, that God loves you, and you may know it by your experience in worship as you hear the Word read and preached, and you, as a result, see Jesus. That's what I want to camp on today. I want you to camp on listening to God's Word and looking at Jesus. Listening to God's Word is his point in verses 9 through 11, and he says, you can be convinced that this is God's Word, that when the Word is read, when the Bible is read, when it's preached on, Jesus is showing up in your midst and He's speaking to you. How can you be so convinced that this Bible that you hold is that? Because one, it's written by a suffering witness. This is John. John is not, uh, John is not some televangelist reaching through the TV screen, sheltered from your suffering, saying, just believe. He says, I am partner with you in the same tribulations. In fact, I am, I am on an island 40 miles southwest of Miletus. I've been put there because of my testimony to the Word of Jesus. I'm telling you, I have suffered. I am suffering for what I'm writing to you. It's one thing for somebody to say, cheer up, it'll all be okay, if they're sheltered from the suffering that you're in. But here, this one, he is suffering for Jesus for having written what he has written. John is one of the few, if maybe the only apostle who was not martyred for his faith. Tradition tells us that, had, that Domitian uh, tried to shut him up, tried to get him to recant, and, and, and attempted to do so by boiling him in oil. And when he did not die, 
He banished him to the Isle of Patmos. And even after that, John writes and says, we are loved even through this tribulation. What you have written to you is written by a suffering witness. And all of the apostles whose shields you see at, 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 the, at the high point of this sanctuary, all of these apostles, you notice how many death instruments are involved. There's a sword, there's an axe, there's a, there's a hatchet, there's a windmill where somebody's strapped to it. And the, These are all images of their martyrdom. And they speak to us saying, I have shed my blood to tell you that what you read and hear in the Word of God is true. There's another reason you must accept that this is God's Word. It's the Spirit's witness. And we covered this last week. I won't go so much into it this week, but, but the Word is, is, is inspired. We get that from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is God-breathed. The Greek word is theopneustos. God breathes it out. And then Peter says, uh, this wasn't a result of uh, uh, the prophet's own interpretation in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, but people wrote down God's Word as they were driven along by the Spirit. That is, God gathers up their humanity, and through their humanity, He writes exactly what He wanted you and me to hear. Jeremiah said something similar about his own writing. The words of Jeremiah, to whom the Word of the Lord came. The Word of the Lord comes it is written through the humanity of the author, and what we have is what God wanted. We call that concursus. God is not dictating, but He is writing with the human author in order that you and I might have what He wants us to have. The Bible is inspired because it's from God's Spirit. It's infallible. And then we say something that just makes us look like fools in the world. We say that it is inerrant. Not only that it is inerrant in its teaching and all that's intended to teach, but that what we have is an accurate copy of the original. Now, that's a point. It takes some, I'm going to be a little tedious with you, but I'm doing so because I find this to be so encouraged to people who have been long taught, we've been long taught by our culture, that you really can't trust the Bible as it comes to us in its written form, in its copied form, because it's been, I mean, it's been copied so many times, it's, a, it's written by human beings, and so we get a general idea of what God wants for us. It's a, it's a general inspiration, but, you know, this is just a book, and it's been copied down, and it inevitably has to have a lot of mistakes in it, and therefore, what it says to us to do and what it says to us to not do, we have to evaluate that. I want you to, I want you to pay attention here just for a moment of something I've alluded to in the past, and I teach our high school seniors this in detail, that this, this solid evidence for the, for the inspiration and the infallibility and the inerrancy of their Bible. I do that is that for this strategy. They've heard all their lives don't have sex before marriage, and they've heard don't get drunk, don't put, put them in jail and all that. That's not a new message to them. What they need in the, in the, in the, in the hour of temptation and in, when they're being taught false doctrine is to say, I believe this and I do this because it's based on the Bible, which is infallible, inerrant, and inspired. 
I've given you the theological reasons for its inspiration and its infallibility, but just listen to some data. Where is it that we got this idea that the Bible, because it's been copied so many times, can't be trusted? It started at least in the mid-1800s by German theologians, German higher critical theorists who said, you know, the Bible, there's no book in the Bible, no New Testament book in the Bible that could have been written before A.D. 130. Now, where did they get that number? They, they, they snatched that number out of the air because they reasoned there's no such thing as a miracle. We've become enlightened people. We know that only things, things are all explained by scientific phenomena, and so there are no miracles. So how would, why would somebody write about these things? How could they write it in such a way that it would be accepted? Well, you write it long enough, far enough away from the actual event that nobody can really question it. So it had to be A.D. 130. People accepted that blindly. It swept over to our shores, infected our seminaries and our churches as well. But by 1955, at least, enough scholarship, enough archaeology had been done that even unbelieving, even critical scholars like a man named W.F. Albright would have to admit every book in the New Testament was written in the first century. They had to say it through gritted teeth. Now, what was the difference? They, they wrote this stuff in the first century. When, it's, when people could have said, that's false, that didn't happen, they wrote it then. Furthermore, <clears throat> we have these tests that we can apply to a book of antiquity. There are two tests that you apply to a book that you can study, then you say, this is an accurate copy of the original. We don't have the, co- the, the original, we have this copy, and we can study it with, with a degree of confidence. You know what that kind of book is. It's called a critical edition. And you know that you do, if you don't know anything else, you, you can remember in college or in high school, you had to buy a book that was called critical edition, and it's expensive. And a critical edition is this. We don't have a copy of the original. We've taken these manuscripts, we've compared and contrasted them, and we've developed from them the a- accurate tr- translation. This, is, this, is, this, this tells us what the author originally said. So if at some point in your, in your education you studied Plato, the philosopher, not Pluto and Disney, Plato the philosopher, and you've, you studied Plato, and you got the critical edition, and then the, and, the, and the teacher said, this is what Plato said, we have, we have a high degree of confidence, we don't have the original, but a high degree of confidence that this is an accurate representation of what he said originally. How did they make that? From seven copies. Aristotle, here's the accurate critical edition, based on five copies. I could go down a list of works of antiquity, Theodotus and Herodotus and so forth. I could, Thucydides, I could, I could list to you the, the number of manuscripts that we have from which we have developed a critical edition. None of them is more than a dozen. You know how many manuscripts we have for the New Testament in Greek alone? 5,000. And then we have another 10,000 manuscripts in cognate languages. That is, they're almost word-for-word transliterations into another language similar to Greek. One of those is Coptic or Ethiopic. 
You know, the, the story is going around these days that, that Christianity is a, is a white man's religion. Well, listen, the, the, the church was thriving in, in, in Africa while my people in Scotland were still worshiping Agnus and Lug. In Africa, critical biblical scholarship was occurring, translations of the Old Testament and the New Testament. We have 15,000 manuscripts by which we have developed a critical edition of the New Testament. And you know how many differences we have found in comparing and contrasting 15,000 manuscripts between 1,400 and 2,000 that can all be listed on one sheet of paper, eight and a half by 11. And each of those differences has been commented upon by the committee that put together the critical edition and they have derived what they think is the most accurate version and none of those differences makes a whit of difference to theology or fact. They're incidental differences, an adverb or an adjective, or a definite article or an indefinite article, an order of words. That's a miracle. Do you hear that? 15,000 manuscripts, only enough differences that can be listed on an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper, and none of them undermines the Christian faith. And scholarship can mostly determine what the preferred reading is. Here's another test of antiquity, a book of reliability. And that is the gap of time between the original writing and the first copy. For Plato, it was 1,200 years. The earliest manuscript that we have copy of the original dated within 1,200 years of the original. We have manuscripts of the New Testament that are dated within 40 years of their original. Very few of them over 100 years old. There is more manuscript evidence for the proof of the accuracy of the New Testament alone and the copy that you hold in your Bible than for any other book of antiquity. Your faith, your authority, the authority for you living your life is based on this book that is spirit-inspired and thus infallible. And the words that you read, inerrant messages from the God of grace who loves you. Every one of us has to make our decisions for life based on an authority. What is the authority for your life? And I want you to interrogate it with these questions. What is giving you, what is giving you hope or comfort or direction or causing you dismay? What authority are you relying on? Is it an authority that has been around as long as the Bible? Is it an authority that has been challenged by as many different scholars from every conceivable discipline as the Bible? Is your authority one that has been passed on to you even at the cost of martyrdom? Is your authority, either in your head or on the internet or in the newspaper or your family friend, is it 
an authority that has transformed as many lives as the Bible? Is it an authority that has established as many institutions and created as many initiatives as the Bible have for human flourishing? Is it an authority that enables someone in the midst of a calamity to say, if your word had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Even if you can answer yes to more than one of those questions, you must understand that the one who bases his or her life on the authority of God's Word can answer yes to every one of them. And so when Jesus says to you, God loves you, and I'm going to win over this tribulation, you can trust Him. Now in verses 12 to 20, I'm just going to repeat to you things that you know very well, but should add comfort to this idea that God speaks to you in His Word. When, when, God, when, when, when John hears this voice, what does he do? He turns around and he looks and he sees the Son of Man. He looks and sees Jesus. And Jesus is among the lights, the golden lamp stands. Now, I'm not making up this interpretation. I don't look at these things and say, now what does a lamp remind me of? What does gold remind me of? What do stars remind We interpret this by means of the Old Testament. So what was a golden lampstand? The golden lampstand was the menorah in the temple. That was what distinguished the temple. That seven-armed menorah, that lampstand. And, and what John sees is the lampstand has been dismantled, and each of the arms of the candelabra has been taken into a different church. Now, in the Old Testament, the temple was this. It was the representation of the presence of God. God says, I'm coming down into your midst. I'm going to be with you. And now he's saying, I'm going to be even closer to you. I'm going to move out from the temple, and I'm going to put a temple in your individual village, your city, your parish. I'm going to put my light in your backyard. And then he says further, By saying seven churches, we know from the Old Testament that's a number of wholeness. This is a promise for all churches. And for all these churches, God makes this promise. God gives each one a lamp and each one an angel. I know there there are many pastors of small churches or churches that feel isolated from one another who are listening today or members in small churches listening today, and I want you to understand this is a promise for you as well as for us, that Jesus has lit your light, and Jesus has given you an angel, And that angel's responsibility is to run from heaven to earth and earth to heaven and to keep Jesus mindful of you. Every church is the presence of God in your backyard. And it is being fed with the the power of the Holy Spirit. And you are holding a light and even A little candle in a very dark place provides light. 
Jesus is with the church. That's the first point I want you to see in verses 12 to 20. And secondly, I want you to see Jesus is for the church. When you listen to his word and you turn to him, you hear, Jesus is with me. And in no place can I experience him being with me more powerfully than I can when I'm in corporate worship. And I understand, too, that he is for me. He's for his people in the church let me remind you of his attributes as they're, as they're spelled out here. He is divine, first of all. He's called the Son of Man. That's from Ezekiel 1 and Daniel 7. He's called the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. That's from Isaiah 44, verse 6. He is the living one. That's from Joshua 3, verse 10. All of those titles have been applied to God in the Old Testament. Now they're applied to Christ. He is divine. He is not only divine, he is the priest. He's the intercessor. That's the significance of the long robe. He's the priest praying for us. He is the prophet, the one with white hair, the one with wisdom, who teaches us everything that we need to know. He is the king, the one with the sash, the golden sash. That's what a king wore. And he's a warring king. He has a sword, a little two-edged Dagger was called a tongue in Roman times, so he has a two-edged dagger by which he is putting to death all your and my enemies. And this one, this one puts his hand on you today as really as John saw it in this vision. You can see it just as really as he does because Jesus has spoken his word to you. He's preaching his word to you and he puts his hand on you and he says to you, do not be afraid. Because I love you. Does this really make a difference? Does the preached Word of God really make a difference in our lives with our suffering, with our sadness, with our disappointment, with our disillusionment? You know, something has dawned on me in the last couple of years that I, it's, you're going to think it's strange that it's only dawned on me in the last couple of years. But what has dawned on me is that the Word of God preached from this very pulpit that I stand in altered the course of my family. I grew up in a, in a home that, in a family that didn't know the Lord. Someone led me to Christ when I was in the fifth grade, and I became concerned for my family. I became concerned for my parents, and I tried to witness to them. And <clears throat> by the time I, it came time for college, uh, I, I said to my youth director, I said, I don't know how my parents are going to come to Christ because I'm going away to college. <laughs> My youth director said, you know, I think the Lord can take care of it even without you. And you may find that uh, he does a better job. It may be even more effective. I went away to college my first year, and my parents were ripped out of their 
of our home in North Alabama, and they were transferred to Corinth, Mississippi. We grew up in a liberal church, a church that is an existentialist church, a church that just said, you know, what you need to do is just learn to trust yourself, be courageous, and do good works, and things are going to work out. And then we moved to the, they moved to this other place, and they didn't have enough discernment, but they landed in a church where they heard the gospel. It was a very simple church, very simple gospel. And my dad wanted to know more. He got up early on Sunday morning, and he flipped around through television channels, and he found a broadcast from Second Presbyterian Church in Memphis. And a man named John Richard DeWitt was preaching here. My father always referred to him as Dr. DeWitt. He loved Dr. DeWitt. Now, when I heard he was listening to Dr. DeWitt, now, I was a sophisticated theological student, and I thought, you know, even Dr. DeWitt's colleagues at seminary didn't understand what he was talking about, so I don't know how anybody's going to hear the gospel and be saved from Dr. DeWitt or DeWitt, whoever he is. My dad listened to him every week and loved him. My dad came to Christ. I came home, he would be listening to Dr. DeWitt, and, uh, and uh, he would have his Bible open. I didn't even know how he had a Bible. He was so sad when Dr. DeWitt left, and, and some guy named Sanders Wilson came, and, but he fell in love with Sandy. And for 22 years, he listened to Sandy unpack and apply the Word of God. It changed my dad's life when my dad was unemployed for a year and a half. He had hope I'd never seen in him before. He had a tenderness I'd never seen in him before. He reacted to, to challenges and suffering like I'd never seen before. I saw his temper changed. I saw the way he loved changed. And now at 90 years old, we haven't been able to see each other in over a year. He's had COVID. He's had many brushes with death. His wife has died. He's had many disappointments, but he has hope. Not because he's a naturally positive man, but because the Word of God preached from this pulpit changed him. By it, you can be convinced too, no matter what suffering. Jesus is with the church and speaking to you in her and giving you the patient endurance to endure the tribulation that you're going through and arrive safely and with joy in the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for loving us enough to send Jesus for us. Thank you for loving us enough to cause your word to be written by the Spirit. And now by your, may your Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word, accomplish the purpose for which you have sent it, converting some for the first time as you did my Father, others prodigals, drawing them from the far country, 
the rest of us in need of deep consolation, encouraging us. In Jesus' name we pray and God's people said together, amen.